The genius and power of the internet can't be overstated. This has started revolutions and shine light on the inner workings of our government. Our natural unalienable rights are now considered to be a dispensation of government. And freedom has never been so close to slipping from our grasp as it is at this moment. We also have access to information like never before. But at the same time, so much of the information is intended to deflect, confuse, and upset you. Made by people who want to profit off you or outright control you. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. All of this is exactly why we need to know history and philosophy. We need to understand where we came from so we can know where we're going. Welcome to the show. Would you like to hear a podcast? Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. Today's interview will get us into the even more history-focused aspect of this interview series at the beginning of Season 2. My guest today is Stephen Guerra. He is the host of the History of the Papacy podcast, and I will get him to introduce himself in just a minute. But this episode is planning on being released both on his feed and mine. So what I'm actually going to do is play a little bit of his introduction to begin with. Then I will attempt to smoothly transition that into me asking him to introduce himself, and that was going to be the beginning of what I release as this episode. But I figured I might as well include his introduction as well, that mainly includes me talking about what's going on for this project and for season two. So that'll give you a little refresher for the overall broad perspective of what we're doing here, and then I'll get into the rest of it, and we will play out the interview. So with that, let's start off with his introduction. Hi, we're talking with Joshua from the Our Foundations podcast. Uh, We're going to have a really fascinating conversation today. But before we get started, Joshua, why don't you tell us a little bit about your podcast and the current project you're working on? Yeah, yeah. So what I'm doing right now is starting season two of my show. Season one really covered the systems of society related to government money and education and how those affect society as a whole. And then season two, I'm getting into a comparison between modern times with the current political climate of anti-establishment movements and things like this going on and the role of the internet, the rise of the internet and the impact that that's had on society and has in these movements movements. And so I'm taking those aspects of modern times and doing a comparison to what I believe is the best parallel historically, and that would be the time of the Reformation and the printing press. So you have a lot of very similar parallels going on. Uh, For example, the historic church plays the same or played the same role historically as the modern state does today, where that's where people put most of their faith. That's what people trust in. They provide security and welfare and all these things, it was the same then as it is now. It's just now it's the state, whereas before it was the church filling that role. And I already mentioned the printing press is very similar to the internet and a lot of the changes that that sparked. And the Reformation was an anti-establishment movement of their day, just like we have political unrest and anti-establishment sentiment all around the world today. So the idea is to flesh out this parallel and really dig in to 
basically to better understand modern events and modern times and what's going on and what potentially could be happening based on current trends, that kind of stuff. And so with that, I'm bringing on a few people. I needed some specialists to come on and kind of introduce the context and get into some of this stuff before I dig into specific parallels. And so that's why I reached out to you. I felt like you would be a perfect person to come on and talk about the historical context, especially related to the institutional church, since that's largely what you do on your show. So that's why I wanted to partner with you on this and introduce a lot of this aspect of this project with you. Yeah, this I'm really excited because the uh, the questions that you gave me, they're really a lot of the issues and the whole context and background that I've been talking about in my entire podcast and probably the things that I'm most interested in when talking about the history of Europe and Asia and uh, basically the the history of Christianity and basically religions. It's all the issues that I find the most fascinating. Yeah, that's perfect. Actually, that was something that stood out to me when I've listened in on episodes of your podcast that you've gotten into finance before and economics and things like this that I'm very interested in myself. And so I think we have a, a similar view of each other in that way that we're bringing out different aspects of this historical time period that are really intriguing to both of us. So that works out really well. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about all these issues. So before we get into the meat of the interview, would you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're associated with, and then we can transition into the rest of this interview. My name's Steve, and I host a podcast called The History of the Papacy Podcast. My In my podcast, I look at the history of Christianity from the times of Jesus, and we even go back before that time in many of the episodes to look at the the roots of Christianity, even going back into the Jewish times and before. But the balance of my podcast is looking at really the political, cultural, and history of Christianity through a, a historical lens. We talk a lot about theology, but it's not a theological or religious podcast. We really are looking at the, like I said, political and all those aspects of Christianity and how Christianity fit into the world of Europe and Asia and Africa. And we're start, like I said, we're starting starting at the beginning and just working our way forward and looking at a lot of the issues that surround Christianity and how it was fitting in with the secular history. Yeah, definitely. There's there's a lot of impact that religion has had throughout the ages on society as a whole. So that is a very important aspect to focus on the historical side and political side. I definitely agree with you on that. So what I would like to do to begin with is start off by maybe helping to introduce us to the overall structure of what the institutional church was like, maybe a broad overview of Christianity getting up to this time period of, say, the Middle Ages and into the Reformation. Um, what what did the church look like? What were the different roles within the church, and how did they relate to people, individuals, and society? And kind of what was that structure like? This is sort of, uh, we'll go really broadly here, because by the time of the late mid Middle Ages, early, uh, early modern period, you're talking about that Christianity had been 
in Europe and percolating with the history of Europe for about 1500 years. So, you know, many things had changed and developed. But if you get to the really core of things, the church, the uh, Catholic Church in Western Europe and the state, they really complemented each other, meaning they worked together, but they were also in conflict with each other over money, revenues, and who would control important resources. The structure and the organization of the Christian Church, it started really not long after the times of Jesus, but we can skim past the historical Jesus or else we'd be here all night. Yes. But um, <laughs> really, what it really came down to is that a bishop became the person who served as the leader of a community of Christians. And it was really a monarchical position and a hierarchical one. One bishop served in one geographical area. There's some debate about this, but the uh, the institution it really evolved over the first very few early centuries of Christianity. Uh now, priests, they were the next lower rung, and they served in the stead of a bishop liturgically or in the religious functions in local churches like physical parishes or one church. And then deacons, they served as assistants to the bishops in the administrative functions like such as helping organized relief for the poor or financial administration. And they did have some liturgical functions, but it was more so that they were assisting the bishop in administration. Now, if let's take a look at the church from the bottom up. The, the very lowest person, I guess you could say, in the medieval rung of the church hierarchy was the country priest. And that priest was basically... You know, he served almost all the functions that a local town would need from a religious person. He was there when kids were born. He was there when people died. He was there basically every step of the way. And that country priest uh, oftentimes was born in that locality. They could have been the an illicit son of the previous priest that almost passed down as a job. And um, if we move up a step in the rank, you might have somebody called a suffragan or a dean or a country bishop, which, which was sort of a lower level middle management position. And they were the go-between between a the, these higher orders of the hierarchy and the you know, kind of the lower end of the hierarchy. Next above that, you had the bishop, and bishops were were the technically the leader of a town or a city, but they had their uh, area of influence was over a, a pretty large geographical region. Above the bishop was somebody called a metropolitan or an archbishop, and they were the bishop of a large or important city. Kind of if we were looking at it in, say, England at the time, you would have the priest of some town you never heard of, and he might answer to a either a slightly higher priest or a, a lower-level bishop of a maybe just a slightly larger town you never heard of, then that bishop might have answered to the um, 
archbishop or the metropolitan bishop of some place like Canterbury. Now, that archbishop, they would answer to somebody called a patriarch, and that was the bishop of a major or a really important city or see. So that archbishop of Canterbury, who was the bishop of an entire country, basically, or a large section of a country, they would answer to the patriarch. And in the western part of Europe, that patriarch was the Pope of Rome. Uh, in other parts of the Christian world at that time, there was patriarchs in Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, Jerusalem, out, uh, Russia at that time in Moscow was forming a patriarchate. You had um, in outside of Rome or the, the classical Roman Empire, you had patriarchs in Armenia, uh, the former Persian Empire and a few others. But, you know, in the grand scope of things, there was only less than 20 of these patriarchs, and they all didn't recognize each other and this sort of thing. But, you know, they were the, the highest echelon of their particular uh, hierarchies. Constantine the Great, the emperor of Rome, back way back in the early 300s, he really gets this this whole hierarchy rolling when he became a Christian the church really has and had a strong and flexible organizational structure in place by the time that Constantine shows up on the scene. The With Constantine, the church became incredibly wealthy just very quickly. It increased both its power, its uh, financial resources, but it was also gaining secular power to some degree, too. Now, uh, um, a really quick overview of Western Christianity, per particularly what's going on in Western Europe. Uh, Christianity was always connected in some way to the civil government. If we look at the various empires and kingdoms that went through Western Europe uh, after Constantine, you had the Roman Empire, which, you know, you can, we'll throw out the 476 date. The Ostrogothic Empire, which lasted into the 500s, the Byzantine Eastern Roman Empire that came back for a little while into Western Europe that ended in the mid 700s. Then you had the Germanic Holy Roman Empire and different iterations of that that lasted well into the Middle Ages, plus France, England, Spain, all of those places. But in the meantime, the papacy or the Bishop of Rome, it slowly became a secular power in its own, which was a really weird role for bishops in Christianity in general and, and definitely in this early time period, say the early Middle Ages. Bishops really across the entire Western European world started taking on this secular power, depending on the time and the place. It was really where secular power was strong. Bishops really maintained a solely religious role, but um, they were still powerful and influential. It was really where in situations where the secular power was weak, the bishops uh, filled in that power vacuum where they would uh, 
provide military defense and keep basic systems that the Romans had set up in cities, they kept it going because in, for the most part, they were the ones who had influence with the local population and monetary resources to some degree. Now, from the, and with all of this, there's just a lot of history and a lot of nuances here that we just can't get into all of the nooks and crannies. But, you know, getting the main drift, you see that there's a hierarchical power of the church that's in many ways laid on top of, but also next to the secular powers in Europe. Uh you know, and from the mid-750s all the way through the 16th century, the papacy, northern Italy, and the Holy Roman Empire had a, a just a deeply intertwined and many times a really difficult relationship. Uh, one of the particulars that uh, groups that um, people may have heard of was the fight between the Gel Guelphs and the Ghibellines, and those were two brutal factions in northern Italy, which it, those sound like Italian names, but they're actually derived from Germanic houses of the Holy Roman Empire who had come into Italy. And those were uh, each either pro, like extreme pro-papal or pro-Holy Roman Empire factions. And this is really the, you know, in the very, very broadest strokes, you see that the Roman popes who controlled a somewhat of a kingdom, you might call it, in central Italy interacted with northern Italy and the Germanic empires. They were all very, very closely intertwined throughout the entire Middle Ages. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense that it was very complex and very complicated and everything was intertwined in different ways. Um, as a side note, I actually just got done reading The History of Florence by Machiavelli, and he goes into a lot of detail with the Guelphs and the Ghibellines and their fights for control of Florence and one faction would expel the other, and then someone else would bring him back in. Then one would go crying to the Pope at the time, who would send someone to take over the city, and yeah, just back and forth and back and forth. And yeah, you see that tie between the political realm and who was the secular power in an area and the religious realm and the power that the church had, which was more overall in most places, they had more overall power. And so it's a really interesting dynamic. And bringing that up to the parallel that I'm talking about for modern times, I'm doing this parallel between the historic church and the modern state. And in addition to that, I am saying that the historic nobility, the secular power that did not have a whole lot of power overall, there was no such thing really as a nation state at the time, they were more regional and had limited powers and they were under the authority of the church. I am comparing that to modern day corporations where they have a lot of power, but it's regional, so to say, it's in their specific market, and overall, they're under the authority of the state. And so you have very similar roles there. And so with that, could you tell us maybe a few aspects of how the historic church filled some of the roles that the modern state fills in today's society? I mean, in many ways, throughout the entire Middle Ages, the the secular powers, the kings, the dukes, the d 
duchies, they really didn't provide a lot of services that the the regular people, so to speak, needed. They weren't um, very much taking care of the poor. They didn't do much to facilitate just much of anything that general your run-of-the-mill person needed, especially back then, what was essential for most people was getting the the sacraments of the church, blessings of marriages, blessings of almost every function of daily life. You want to start plowing in the beginning of the season. You get a blessing from the priest. You want your daughter to marry this guy, you get the blessing of the priest. You Almost anything that these people needed and what was really important from their day-to-day life was almost, a, it was a requirement to get a blessing. And what the what the kings and the dukes and the, the, the aristocracy was doing was they were really their security was their major function and it always and it really was kind of a uh, nebulous security like they weren't even policing the streets as such you know there might have been some of that but it was really protection of their property the the kingdom was the king's property so if he was doing something to facilitate trade it was to grow his revenues so that he, so that he could bring on more house troops to protect his castles, which was protecting his property. They just, you know, they didn't get involved as much in what these these functions of daily life are, where now, you know, so now in in modern days, we don't need, you know, many people, you know, in a, in a secular world, the church isn't as important in their life because those those sacramental things that the church did aren't as important in his life in their lives. But the government provides; they plow the roads if it snows. They make sure that the sewer system works. So those things that are more vital in our lives now, the state is taking care of. Yeah, yeah, I see that, and I'm seeing a lot of examples that I hadn't really put together as you were talking and that would be things like like welfare and education people really feel that this is very necessary in society and i would agree and people look to the state to provide that whereas they look to the church historically and another thing you mentioned was the blessings and you had to get a blessing to get married and you got a blessing at different times in your lives for different events and different things that were going on and things you wanted to do and that was something that you got from the church that reminds me a lot of getting a license or permission from the government if you oh, want yeah, that to that is true yeah, yeah yeah so if you want to get married you have to get a license if you want to fish in the river you have to get a license if you want to build a house you've got to get permission and so yeah there's some definite parallels there. And then you mentioned the nobility, that they didn't really, they weren't really as associated with the everyday life of society writ large. They were more focused on physical security. And some of that was selfish, that they needed to protect themselves and their land. And part of that would then extend to the people that lived within their region. And they provided that role. And it was a much different role and uh, largely a smaller role if you look at society as a more from more of a macro view. And so if I'm comparing that to corporations, corporations do a similar thing. They're not really involved directly in all different aspects of day-to-day life, 
but they are very involved with more economic security or job security. You rely on that corporation for a paycheck so that you can live, you can buy food, you can pay your rent or your mortgage. You need corporations to be there to pay you. You need someone to work for and corporations will pay you and give you what you need. But part of that is from selfish motivations where they just want to make a profit and take care of themselves, similar to how the nobles just wanted to largely take um, their own areas and their own castles and their own possessions. They wanted to make sure that those were very secure and the people were kind of a secondary aspect of that. They're motivated to keep content. And that's similar to corporations where they're motivated to make profits and grow their business and the employees end up benefiting from that as well and customers do too most of the time. But um, but it wasn't really their direct concern, whereas the state, their direct concern is taking care of everyday life of the citizens and the large needs they want, just like the church at the time was taking care of the large needs of the people. So that's some really interesting parallels there. And it's interesting that there is an area where I think we'll see it a little tiny bit in today's episode, but uh, you, you'll probably get into it in other ways is that the the kings and the the secular authorities if you will they had the you know what the i don't remember who the person who's uh invented that's the monopoly of violence ah uh, yes they now in that in that case they had and which carries through into the modern idea of the state is that they still have the the monopoly of violence they're the ones who ultimately can use violence i mean that's the ultimate thing that the state has to coerce or to you know uh make people follow the laws and is that they have that they're the ones who can can have violence i can't make you know i can't make you make sure that um you know if we if i sold you my xbox that you pay me i'm not allowed to come in and beat you up over it or you know wave a gun at you that's uh, that's the state i can go to the state to get a remedy, but I'm not allowed to do that. And the church, for the most part, was not allowed to do that, much like corporations today aren't allowed to use violence to to get people to do what they want. The church had a, I guess you might say, a soft power and that people truly believe that maybe their lives, their physical lives weren't on the line, but their their souls were on the line so that the church had a power that in the medieval eye was just as important or maybe more important than the secular power uh you know and i don't know if there is a parallel with what you know the modern corporation has with that i mean it's kind of the economic security angle but the, the you know that is an aspect of the church that you know, obviously, many people in today's age believe that, you know, religion is, you know, is a fundamental part of their lives. But it wasn't quite the same as what it would be by the medieval perspective. Yeah, I would probably say that the parallel would be that the historic individual, the historic citizen in this time period, looked to the church for their eternal security, and that was mm-hmm. paramount to them. Whereas in modern times, largely we are not really a religious society, at least not to the same extent that they were at that time period. 
And so people are not quite as concerned generally with their eternal security. They are concerned with their security here and now in this physical world. And so they rely on the state to provide them with that security. And that is their main focus in today's world, whereas the focus then was the eternal security, which came from the church. So, yeah, there is a good parallel there as well. Yeah, maybe because, you know, at those times that economic, physical security was so much more on a razor's edge than it is today. You know, you're you're putting more of your chips into the eternal bank than in the day-to-day bank because of the, you know, the chance of catching a disease and dying tomorrow, you know, the next day, or, you know, the economic security or a bad crop away from famine, you know, those things were everyday life. People, you know, could lose four or five children in infancy. So, you know, that, um, you know, a lot more weight was put on to that um, afterlife security. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Another one of the aspects that uh, was a bit of an issue in that time period in people's everyday lives and the way they viewed the authorities over them was corruption. Very similar to what we have today. There are plenty of examples. You've got the people that are calling out Trump for impeachment because he did some corrupt dealing with Ukraine. You have whistleblowers that have come out, WikiLeaks articles that came out about Obama bombing hospitals and buses full of innocent civilians in the Middle East. You've got the Epstein deal, which I would argue is the largest corruption scandal of modern history, and oh, it largely got blown <laughs> over. But that that's still going on. That still happened. That was still a really big deal involving heads of states and corporate executives and heads of academia all around the world. That was a pretty big deal. And so we see corruption that has infused itself in all of these hierarchies and all of these bureaucracies, and they are intertwined. It is the corporate side of things as well as the state. Just like historically, you did have corruption with the nobility. They were corrupt in many ways. We'll talk about the Medici later on, but a lot of examples of corruption there as well. And that was also very much had a big presence in the church where there were many abuses of power and a lot of corruption that was going on throughout the whole history of the church, largely, once you get past maybe the founding fathers of the church. And so with that, could you tell us a little bit about some of these abuses of powers and some of these examples of corruption? Because this largely leads us into the anti-establishment movement of the Reformation. I think the best way to look at this is we'll start in the 1500s, late 1400s and then work our way back and just hit a few of the the highlights or the lowlights if you will of church corruption specifically the corruption of the church in the west as things stand in the the late 1400s the early 1500s the uh, the what the church is accused of in their abuses are a bit overstated in in my opinion at least It's really, if you go back to say, you know, if we make our first stop in the 1300s, there was a lot, there was a a time called the Avignon Papacy where the papacy actually up and moved to another location in southern France because of 
corruption that the the king of France wanted the the church there and wanted to be able to dictate the way this you know this huge multinational organization moved funds and moved things around if we go back a bit further you have you know other things like the crusades which we'll get into a bit early, more one of the things that we could really talk about is this time period in the 900s and into the early 1000s is called actually it's called the pornocracy of the papacy Ooh. and it was these are they things were done during this um 100ish year time period that would positively make a renaissance pope blush we're talking about this is the time of the cadaver synod where a the physical body of a a past pope was dug out of his grave and plopped down in the middle of a cathedral to be put on trial we're talking about brothels and um you know, being run right out of the church and money just being skimmed out all over the place. There was a pope who sold his office, got it back again, sold it again. You know, just the the rampant buying and selling of offices. If we go back, really, the further you go back, honestly, there is less corruption in the fact that the papacy wasn't as strong politically, secular politically, and really... It was still fighting at this earliest phase, say before the early Middle Ages, the papacy was really fighting to get religious supremacy over Western Europe. And there was there was less less corruption as such in in secular in secular terms. There were some issues within theological uh, bounds where the papacy made some mistakes and did some things that weren't weren't great but it's really the it's a upward slope and i would argue that it was kind of a downward slope after this pornocracy phase and really after each one of the really bad periods in the papacy there often was a reforming movement to kind of sweep that stuff away would this be where the early monastic movements came into play as kind of a response to some of these? Well, a lot of times the mon- um, monastic movements in the West, they operated in a different way than in where they had traditionally uh, evolved from in the East. In the East, m- monastic movements, uh, local monasteries were always under the direct uh authority of the local bishop whereas in the west as they developed they became under many of them their hierarchies went around the local bishop and went to either rome or to the pope directly in some cases so you it was a lot easier for them to operate kind of outside of a lot of the corrupting influences, and you would see new monastic movements pop up and be uh, the ones who pushed reform. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And for a random modern parallel that I thought of, uh, I know a lot of the early monastic movements, they were very focused on self-sufficiency and living basically off the grid and being self-sustainable. And they were ones that felt like the church in some ways was being maybe a little bit 
um, not really following what they should be following theologically and what the Bible preaches, that rather someone who is religious should be dedicated to the point of not gathering up riches and not trying to gain power, especially politically. And so they separated themselves and had these kind of side movements. And I, I see movements like that going on today with self-sufficiency movements and people that believe society is corrupt in this consumerist culture that we have where everybody just wants the newest and best and biggest and brightest thing and we need to buy more and we go into debt to buy more and people see this as being a little ridiculous and that that doesn't make a whole lot of sense if we really want to live a good life and they believe that they should kind of separate from these aspects of society, be more self-sufficient. You have the agorism movements of people wanting to operate outside of the system and not have to rely on whether it be the state or corporations or any other social structures that they see maybe some inconsistencies in or some corruption in. And so we, we see some movements like this, and hopefully movements like these do affect the institutions as a whole, like I know with these early monastic movements, they had some qualms with the way that the papacy was acting and some of the local bishops were acting, and they didn't necessarily split off and form their own church. We weren't to that point yet, but they did make their issues kind of obvious, and they did so by how they were living, and that did have an impact on the church as a whole. You mentioned how they kind of would swing back to being a little more in the position that they technically should be, according to what the Bible preaches, and so they did have this impact, and maybe hopefully some of these more alternative movements today that are less focused on gaining power and wealth and these kinds of things, maybe they'll have an impact on society too. Yeah, I think that, um, and you really see that now in the West, you would also have some monastic movements that would go off the rails a bit because economically speaking, their self-sufficiency, they would often invent through their, you know, through setting up their uh, communal livings, they would either maybe be on a major trade route or have an access have access to some resource where they could accumulate a lot of money and a lot of resources and become corrupted themselves or at least perceived to be corrupted in a lot of cases corruption can be a lot in what's perceived more so than what or you can always throw that corruption label on something that you don't like. And I think that happened at points during this whole Reformation story that as perspectives changed and they didn't like what was happening, say, in Rome, which we'll get into in a, in a few minutes when we talk, when we actually get into, say, the Reformation, then this this perception that something's corrupt but it had been it you know for the people who were maybe living closer to it they the system was working fine or it was working you know the people didn't see that it was corrupted in other places 
Yeah, that makes sense. Um, we we see that with maybe bands that people think of as alternative music that's kind of on the fringes and they're doing the newest hip thing and then they sign with a major record label and people say they sold out. And that yeah. that is seen as an aspect of corruption, whereas when you look at it from a different perspective, maybe they're just successful and that's a good thing. So yeah, a lot of that does have to do with your perspective, I guess. Yeah, I guess another example would be with uh, craft beer lately. If a craft brewer sells out to one of the major international uh, beverage corporations, then all the craft brew uh, aficionados say they sold out, they this, they that. But to the person whose brewery might have shut down if they didn't sell out to it, to them it's not a corruption of their what of how they uh did business it's a way for them to actually continue doing business and producing their product if they're you know if the product hasn't changed is it really a corruption i mean i guess it's again it's a, to the eye of the beholder yeah yeah actually recently interviewed a catholic theologian and we went over some of the the catholic perspective on a lot of these different aspects and it was actually very rational very logical it made a lot of sense largely and so you, you, I definitely got that impression that from one perspective, these different decisions the church was making and things the church was doing, from a perspective, they were doing the right thing and what was best for, I guess, the whole. But then again, from the other perspective, it was viewed as being completely corrupt and off the rails and that kind of stuff. So all of these types of things led to multiple movements, like you mentioned, there were multiple time periods where people kind of stood up and said that, hey, this is not right. And there were some changes. And then there were more corruptions. And then someone else would call them out. And there might have been some changes. And I, I think of the movements of the 60s and 70s, for example, in America, especially, where you had things like civil rights, and everybody was against the man. And that was the hippie movement. And it was very anti-establishment. And we've had many movements like this around the world. Different countries have had them at different times. And oftentimes, it's just a movement. There are some minor changes with the government writ large, and things move on. And that's kind of what I'm hearing here as we have, uh, for example, the different monastic orders at times, and other people at times were calling out the church, and the church would kind of change their ways, maybe change some of their things. But largely, things continued on their path. But then we get to the Reformation, where we have this anti-established movement that, for many reasons, it actually took root. It actually had an effect. It was a very big deal. So would you get into a little bit what the problems were that the reformers perceived with the Catholic Church? What were they so mad about, and why was it such a big deal to them? So if we look at the, again, at the broad scope of history, there were in Christianity about three major major schisms where again it's a kind you know a kind of a reform movement or a a, a difference in opinion a, a difference in theological opinions a couple of them happened very very early and uh, still during the time of the Roman Empire uh, and then a really big one happened between the church of the Eastern Roman Empire that was still going on, the Byzantine Empire, and the uh, 
the Church of the Papacy in Western Europe that happened in 1054, but which had been percolating for about 300-ish years before that. There hasn't in Christianity been a ton of schisms as much as we, you know, in the post-Reformation time, that's uh, beyond the scope of our conversation today. But if you're somebody standing in the early modern period in fifteen in the 1500s, you would see that there's the the church that the the Greek church, as they called it in the West, and that split off. And, you know, a long, long time ago, if somebody had a really long perspective, they could have seen that some other churches had, you know, split off from Rome. But so at this point, what made the Reformation happen and what caused this schism was really in my estimation, a couple of different things, really probably four or five different events that happened in pretty close uh, succession. The first one was the the Black Death that happened in, say, the mid-1300s-ish. It killed just tens to hundreds of millions of people in a really short time. A third to a half of the population, and even more in some places, were killed off. I mean, I probably don't have to tell the audience this. I'm sure these are um, statistics that they well know, but it really, it very much changed the demographics of Western Europe and the way that the classes, the economic and the social classes interacted with each other. And when I mean classes, I'm using these medieval ones, those who work, those who fight, and those who pray. So the clergy, the aristocracy, and then the you know, the working person, uh, it, that whole medieval way, it ignores the merchant class, but that, that, that'll become important with these changes. The, but the, and the Black Death, it really rocked the economy and the labor markets just to their very core. It also, it really rocked the moral authority in many places of the church and it made people, a lot of people, question their faith. How could a God do this to people? I mean, just imagine in your life today that within just a few years, half the people you know are gone. Your, maybe all of your kids are gone. Maybe your wife is gone. Maybe all your parents are gone. Like, just the massive social change and what that just does to your to a person's entire mindset as, as far as the church went, this was a time where, you know, in many places, rich bishops would just flee. So they're not staying with their their flocks and tending them while they're dying of these horrendous diseases. They go and run off to the country to get as far away from this pestilence as they can. Maybe your parish priest's like, forget it, I'm out of here. You know, things like that happened. A lot of priests and uh, nuns, religious women's, women, they did stay, but a, a lot of them left. And just all these different things that rocked people's you know, just foundational lives right to the, you know, right to the foundations. Now, a second thing was this thing that we mentioned earlier called the Avignon Pope Papacy, which Avignon is a town in southern France, which was kind of on the border of where the Holy Roman Empire and the Kingdom of France met um, together. Not that that means probably very much, but in modern, it's pretty well situated in the southern France area. 
A ma- this was a major schism in the Western Church that lasted from 1307 to 1377, and the papacy moved to this small town, and this there was a great deal of corruption going on here. It was the papacy and the, the whole operation of the church became a tool of the French kings, and the French king put on, uh, elevated a lot of people to the papacy and uh, got a lot of French people into really French um, bishops and clergy into really important positions all to enrich France and to uh, further France's needs and desires in the world. The, um, you know, and that really knocked the papacy up to that point and the whole hierarchy of the church were highly respected institutions, but the, um, the, it just, this whole event really tarnished the, the, the whole reputation of the church. And, you know, it, again, it's just a, it's just changing those views that a lot of people had on the church that, you know, the Pope of Rome supposed to be in Rome and now he's in Avignon so that he can be, you know, under the thumb of the French king and all that. It just, it, it didn't look good. It wasn't good optics in the modern parlance. The next thing is the Crusades. The definite start of the Crusades was in 10, in the uh, 1054 <clears throat> In the end, in you know any scholar, you go and look up their book or ask somebody. They have a different date, but you could kind of put that ending of the main crusades about two hundred later years later in the early two hundreds. Some people stretch it out to fourteen ninety two, um, when the final uh, uh, town in or area of the. Uh, Iberian Peninsula was taken back from the Muslims after their long conquest. That's another grand scope of history. But this is what got Western Europe really back into the Mediterranean commercial world. The crusaders and the people who went on crusade, they needed money and the merchants had money and they well and they also wanted to sell wares. They wanted to get connected into this really great trade stream that was going on this you know you had your medieval kingdoms duchies counties kings they didn't have the resources to just pick up and move their household army to the levant so they needed they needed money they needed connections they needed a way to even if a king in england had money uh you know, money by a big pile of coins sitting in his vault somewhere. He didn't have any means to safely get that money to Jerusalem. So systems needed to be set up, right, to get all this in line so that these people could go fight in the Holy Land. The the church is one of the institutions that had connections all over the place, and they were able to start moving this capital and people around Europe and into the Middle East. And a ton of money flooded into the church. They became very wealthy as they refined and built up these economic tools to get people into the Holy Land to fight. Now, there's a a period in the 1200s, it's... um, it's called the High Middle Ages and the High Middle Ages Renaissance. 
It was an upswing in the 1200s. This was a time period where the weather was great and population swelled. One thing is, though, that agricultural technology, it hadn't changed very much really since the Roman times. And so at this point, really, the whole Malthusian equilibrium, it was always on the horizon that once you started just stretching a little bit beyond the carrying capacity of the land, little changes could wipe out a lot of population. I'm reading a really a great book right now called Against the Grain that talks about how early states formed. And it talks a lot about how, uh, you know, a lot of these civilizations, these early civilizations, but it really carried on until not too long ago, were really on, a, you know, they were always hanging over the edge of the cliff of a bad harvest or a bad climate change. And that's kind of what happened right after this, this big economic upswing in the 1200s. Uh, this is an early time where um, merchants in northern Italy, they turned from merchants of trade goods into bankers, early bankers. Northern Italy was in a really nice spot because they were close. They had a close relationship to the Holy Roman Empire, which connected them into Northern Europe. They were connected into Southern Europe by proximity, but they were also connected into this Mediterranean trade. The popes and the church needed bankers for all this, you know, all this cash that was rolling in. And really, money and Christianity and probably money and religion. In the end, they really don't mix, especially with the, you know, when you get a lot of these back to basics reformers who come along, like we were talking about, you know, they see all of this wealth and opulence that the church gained and they just, they, they didn't like how it looked. And then the one other thing that happens just before the Reformation is the really the kickstarting of the Age of Discovery where Columbus goes to the Americas and then the flood of, um, you know, quote unquote discoveries that happen after that, that really opened up new markets and greatly expanded trade. One thing that it did was um, it brought in a huge influx of new goods. I mean, you talk all about the Colombian Exchange all these products that Europeans had no idea even existed, and now they're uh, now they're just everywhere. They're commonplace. Things like rare spices, like pepper, that would have only been at a king's table in the Middle Ages, now is a consumer commodity product. Uh, not too long after the Age of Discovery opens. There was also a really big explode or increase in the money supply. One thing that really held Europe back during the Middle Ages was that they were really in a liquidity crisis, that they didn't have much physical coin in gold and silver. And that got solved really quickly when the Spanish went to the New World and they go there and they're just finding gold, literal, you know, almost practically mountains made out of silver. Uh, and this, you know, all this new trade, it really, it completely revitalized Europe. It's, and that's where we're standing in, in the 1500s. 
there are Luther and the ref, the reformers that operate at about the time of Luther. They're just in a time of absolute incredible change. That you know, just the the social, economic, cultural, and technological change is happening at a breakneck speed. Maybe not breakneck by our standards. But things changing that quickly inside of 200 years was very unusual for them. And in a lot of ways, you can compare that all that change to things that are happening today. Well, let's stop this section of the interview here. This will be part one, and we'll pick up next time with some more modern parallels to these things that you have just laid out. There are many things that correspond with the parallels that I'm making and things that are just coming to me as you are talking. I wrote down notes, and I will address those in what will be for the listeners the next episode. So listeners, please come back for the rest of this interview. I hope you have enjoyed it. Uh, the next episode will actually not be the rest of the interview in its entirety. This is actually going to be a three-parter. This was a pretty long conversation. We got into a lot of stuff, especially getting into the next two episodes. We start incorporating some other aspects of the political side of things, both then and in the present, as well as looking forward to what potentially could be coming in the future. So there's a lot more coming. So come back for that. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for being a part of this project by supporting through reviews and ratings and emails and following and going to the website and just all the different things, all the ways that you interact with the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you to the patrons for supporting financially, putting your money into this project. I greatly appreciate that. That means a lot to me. Thank you very much. And with that, I will get out of here and I will come back next time as we introduce part two of this interview with Steve Guerra. Thank you. I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundation's podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah, thank you.